Hey, it's good to see you guys. We're in Mark chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12. Today, I hope to answer the question today from our passage, is it a mistake to hope? Is it a mistake to hope? I'm hearing that ring a little, just a little bit. Um, how many of you ever say, ever make the statement, I don't want to get my hopes up? How many of you ever said that? I don't want to get my hopes up. Uh, so I've got the job interview, but I don't want to get my hopes up. Or I had a good report at the doctor, but I don't want to get my hopes up. Or Kentucky got a really good draw in the tournament, but I don't want to get my hopes up. I did have to go there. Why do we say that? Why do we say, I don't want to get my hopes up? It's because Kentucky always loses before they're supposed to lose, right? Amen? This should win the championship every year. It never happens. And, uh, and in life, oftentimes our, our, our reality doesn't meet our expectations, And sometimes we get optimistic, we get our hopes up, and then it's just like the bottom falls out. And the thing we hope for, the opposite thing happened. And disappointment is one of the most painful things we experience. And I think as a defense mechanism, oftentimes we grow kind of jaded and cynical, and we say, well, you know, life is crap, and it's all going to pot, so why should I care? Why should I try? And I honestly think, as I look around at our city, I think that's what happens in Winchester a lot of times. I think a lot of times, you know, we, we look around at all that's going on and, you know, we say, well, that's Winchester for you. You know, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it'll always be. It's always kind of been crooked in politics. And it's always kind of been, you know, a lot of drugs here and a lot of sin here and a lot of darkness here. And, you know, people always mismanage money in Winchester and we don't have nice things. It's like uh, last night, the George Rogers Clark boys basketball team won the state tournament. Which is so weird. It's so weird. Like, that kind of stuff doesn't happen in Winchester, right? And, and so I think a lot of times we get jaded and we get cynical. And as I'm reading through the Gospel of Mark, this is one, one of the things I'm learning about Jesus. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's consistent, that kind of attitude, the pessimistic attitude. I don't know that it's consistent with Jesus' teaching. You know, Jesus, he taught, preached, repent, change your mind, change your attitude, change your ways, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached that heaven is within reach, and not just on the other side of death, but even now. He said, God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is saying it's possible for us to have a heavenly experience even as we live in what sometimes feels like hell, that that heaven isn't far. It's not unreasonable to be optimistic. And so today, what I hope that we'll see is that um, many of us have grown jaded and cynical to our own destruction, and that it's actually wise, it's actually necessary for us to be people of hope. So let's all stand together. Uh, The Gospel of Mark, we're going to begin reading Mark 12, beginning in verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife, raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scripture or the power of God. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come today uh, just asking, Lord, that you will bless us, that you'll guide us. Uh, We acknowledge that you are the God of all creation. You are the name above every name. You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings. And we are absolutely nothing. We are lost and dying and hopeless, totally helpless, unless we have you. And so we praise you today that you've done all that you can. There is nothing you've left undone in calling us into a deep, personal, intimate relationship with you. And Lord, because we have you, there is absolutely nothing that is impossible. Lord, remind us of that today. I pray that you'll speak through me. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace. I am only here in this position because of your mercy, because of your work in my life. And I praise you for that today. Lord, I pray that people don't hear me today. I pray they hear a word from you. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray. take a second and just pray for the people around you. I'd also ask that you pray for those who may be watching online. Pray for all that's happening in Ukraine and just around that situation. Pray for the believers there, the refugees, the widows, the orphans. And I'd ask this morning that you also pray for a little baby just recently born. His name's Corbin. And... uh, Corbin McIntosh, Jeff and Sarah's son, that he will gain weight. Take a moment, pray for that. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. The Sadducees, the Sadducees. I'm gonna, this is an old preacher joke, uh, but it helped me remember about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were sad you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. You'll have to forgive me for the corny, but thank you, Bill. I got one hand clap. But that's a helpful reminder. Uh, The Sadducees is a a group of Jewish leaders, uh, very elite, and they didn't believe in the supernatural world, uh, so to speak. They They didn't really believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in heaven or hell or judgment. They did believe in God. They believe in the God of the Bible, specifically the God that they read about in the first five books of the Bible. They prioritized that. They said this is the, the authorized word of God, and so we want to live our life according to that. Not because there's a judgment. They believed that uh, God had created the world. He'd set everything in motion, and then he took a step back, and he left all of us to our own free will, to our own devices, to live with the consequences of our choices, either good or bad. And so in their estimation, they thought, okay, God has left us these these five books of the Bible called the law or the Torah, and if we live according to this manual for living, then things will go well for us. And so they looked at the scriptures, the first five books of the Bible, as a hack for success, a life hack for success. And so they were very, very legalistic about it. Now, uh, this way of life actually served them well as far as worldly standards go. They were very successful. Uh, They rose to the pinnacle oftentimes of the highest levels of authority and leadership in the Jewish culture. Uh, The Sadducees were often the ones who were the chief priests. 
They were the scribes. They were the elders. Uh, they came from the most wealthy families. They were the most educated. Oftentimes, they had the most power. But they made up a very small minority of the Jewish population, and most Jewish people despised them. And so a modern-day parallel would be like the corporate elites that we see on the East Coast and the West Coast, the people that were born into the right family, born into money, had a silver spoon in their mouth their whole lives. They went to the Ivy League schools. They're the elite of the elite. They have the inside track to the corporate jobs, to the highest levels of authority in our country. And most of us common folk, they look down on us, right? And especially if you're a believer, if you believe the Bible, if you profess to be a Christian, these type people, and maybe you've experienced some of these people, they would say to you, you actually believe those fairy tales? I can't believe that. Now, I can understand why you'd follow some of the precepts of Jesus, and I can understand how you'd follow. He was a good teacher, a good moral teacher, but you can't really believe that Jonah was swallowed by well. You can't really believe that God created the earth the way he did. You can't really believe in a resurrection. That's all a legend. That's all a fairy tale. The Sadducees were the same type of people. They were the elites. They looked down on everybody else, and most everybody didn't like them very much, but they were very, very successful. Now, what we see are this small group of people, they come to Jesus, and they're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And they, they begin, verse 19, teacher, teacher. This is a form, a form of flattery. Uh, they don't respect Jesus in that way. A teacher is a, a term of endearment, but they don't have any respect for Jesus. They're only doing this to try and manipulate him. Now, here's a, this is free. I'm not going to charge you any extra for this piece of advice. Uh, but if, if somebody, you know somebody, and they often try and flatter you, that's a warning sign. Flattery, all throughout the scriptures, you see flattery, and there's something devious on the other end of it. And that's exactly what we see here. They're trying to butter Jesus up. They're trying to manipulate him so that he will put his guard down, and he will answer incorrectly. And so they begin. They say, Moses wrote for us, first five books of the Bible. This is what they're experts in. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind with no children. So there's, just get this picture. Woman is widowed, and the the widow has brother-in-laws. They say, That man, the brother, should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This is what's known. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's what's known as the Leverite law. Uh, Leverite means kin or brother. And the idea was if in this day this was important because women weren't self-sufficient. They had to have a man in their life in this day and age. And so it was important that if a woman was widowed, especially younger in life, that if she had brother in laws, it was the responsibility of the brother-in-law to come along and marry this widow, give her children. And and what this did, it protected her, gave her a man that could protect and provide for in this day and age. It also protected the inheritance so that it just go to somebody else. And it also uh, protected the children and protected the family name. And so this is a law that's given in the book of Moses. And so they're referring to that. And then they start to tell this story. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Now, I'm hearing this story. They're like, okay, you remember the leave a right raw, the brother-in-law is supposed to marry the widow. And so you've got that in your mind. And now I'm going to tell you the story of this woman and she gets married, the brother dies, and then she marries the brother, he dies, so on and so forth, seven brothers. I don't know to say poor man or poor woman in this situation, right? Because if this is a CIS episode, she is the prime suspect, right? So this is, they, this is a hypothetical extreme. Uh, it is, this is not a real story, not a true story, 
Nobody is this unlucky or this evil, okay? And so they're, they're just telling this hypothetical. They're trying to trap Jesus. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. And so uh, it's important to remember that the Sadducees don't believe any of this stuff. They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a heaven or hell. And so uh, they're not asking this question because they're curious. They're asking this question because they're trying to show Jesus and all the people that are following Jesus. Jesus professes a resurrection. He says there's going to be afterlife. They're trying to make Jesus look stupid. They're trying to make him look foolish. Like, Jesus, don't you see how stupid the idea of a resurrection is? Because you've got this law. Moses says that, you know, they're supposed to marry and marry and marry. The widow's supposed to marry and marry and marry. And now, so she's going to have seven husbands? She's going to have brother husbands like Mormons, reverse Mormons in heaven? Is that what's going to be like? And, and so they're trying to make Jesus look stupid. This is his response. Jesus spoke to them, and he said, you are stupid. That's what he says. You, this story was stupid, and you're stupid. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? Why are they mistaken? Two reasons. A, you don't know the scriptures. And B, you don't know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Now, let's pause right here, and I want you to think about how this landed on them. These are men who went to the highest levels of education, the absolute best schools in the region. From the time they could read, they were studying the first five books of the Bible. They were studying the scriptures. From the time they could read, they had parts of it memorized, uh, chapters at a time they could recite from memory. And Jesus says to him. You don't know what you're talking about. You're clueless. You're ignorant. He says, you're ignorant because you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Now, important point here that we all need to realize. It is possible to know the Bible and not know God. It is possible to know all the Sunday school answers. You can ace a Sunday school test and not know Jesus. Now, if you don't believe that, all you got to do is watch the History Channel. How many of you ever watched the History Channel? Around this time of year, every single year, you'll see it, uh, they will put out a show that's trying to debunk the resurrection of Jesus. As we get closer to Easter, you're going to see that more and more and more. And what they'll do, they'll invite a biblical scholar onto the show. Now, here's the thing about these biblical scholars. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. Uh, one of their, their most common guests is a guy named Dr. Bart Ehrman. Dr. Bart Ehrman. And this guy is an expert. He is a biblical scholar. He's got letters in front of his name, letters behind his name. He knows the Bible backward and forwards in the original language. He has parts of it memorized. If he and I were to get into a debate, he would smoke me. I mean, absolutely torch me in a debate. There's no way I could stand up to this guy in a debate about the Bible. And, but he will get on the History Channel, and he will deny the resurrection of Jesus. Knows the Bible cover to cover, backwards and forwards, and you hear that, and you watch it, and he makes some compelling arguments, and you watch it, and, and, and what you will do, it'll, start, it'll begin to make you doubt your faith, and you're like, well, this guy's super smart, and he knows the Bible backwards and forwards, and he doesn't believe in the Scriptures. Maybe it's stupid. Maybe it's stupid for me to believe the Scriptures. Maybe it's stupid for me to believe in the afterlife, and so that's what we see here. Uh, but, but here's the mistake that the Sadducees made and Jesus' uh, Jesus's adversaries, the Sadducees made and, and Bart Ehrman made. They deny the power 
of God. So how can a guy that knows the scriptures backwards and forwards deny the resurrection? It's because when he approaches the scriptures, when he begins his study of the scriptures, he begins with the assumption that there is no supernatural world. He begins with the assumption that miracles are all fairy tales. He begins with the assumption that if there is a God, he has totally pulled back and he has left us to deal with. He does not intervene. He does not affect change in the world. He's left us to deal with our own situation. And so that's where they begin. And so if, you, if that's what you believe about the scriptures, you're going to deny it because you deny the power. You can't know the scriptures. You can't understand the scriptures if you deny the power of God. They don't know. Now, to know the power of God is to know that God is alive and active. The Big Bang was not some cosmic accident. It was the universe came into existence because of the breath of God. And this is what the biblical scholars do. They, they look at all these Bible stories, and they try and explain it away. They'll say, well, the Red Sea imparted because there was a, a sharp wind that blew the sea back. No, it wasn't the wind. It was the hand of God. When, when the Israelites are in the desert and they're eating this manna, the manna, they would say the manna is bug residue. That's what guys like Bart Ehrman says, bug residue. There's a bug that flies around over there in the Middle East and it'll leave like this. Nobody's going to eat that. Nobody's going to eat that. It wasn't bug residue. It was bread from heaven. When, when the disciples are there on the, the raging sea and they see some, some figure walking towards them, that was not an aberration. That wasn't anything. That was the Son of God walking on water. On Easter Sunday, it wasn't a hallucination. All these dozens of people saw when they saw, they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the power of God. It wasn't a motivational talk that changed your life. It was the active work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It wasn't good vibes that turned things around for you. Please stop asking people to send you good vibes. You don't need any good vibes. You need an answer to prayer is what you need. It wasn't luck that you survived. It wasn't luck that you missed this tree that you were about to have a head-on collision with. It wasn't luck that you're still alive and you should have been dead about 17 times because you do dumb stuff at work all the time and OSHA's on you all the time. It's not, it wasn't luck. It's the mercy. It's the grace of God. He is alive, and he is active, and he's interested, and he's involved. He hasn't just created this world and stepped back and said, you're on your own. He is interested in your life. He is invested in your life. It's the power of God. My God is not dead. He is not asleep. He is not far off. He loves you. He is for you. He is with you. The power of God. And once you realize that, once you realize it is the, the power of God, once you realize that, then this book is not a legend to scoff at. This book is not a law to follow. This, this book is not a, a life hack to success. This book is the very words of God, the breathed out words of God, alive and active, cutting to the heart of every matter. It is a, a path. It is a light for our path. It is a strong and mighty tower for us to stand up against all of the devices of the enemy. It is a promise that God is surely to keep. It's the power of God. And if you're going to know the scriptures, you've got to start by believing in the power of God. That these, these stories that we read, they're not legend. It's history. Real men, real women that God intervened. And he did the impossible in their life. You've got to start with that. 
You gotta start by believing. And haven't you seen it in your life? Time and time again, where God showed up at just the right way, at just the right time, do just the right thing to let you know that he's there, to give you just enough energy, just enough momentum, just enough strength to get through that challenge. He's alive and he's active. Jesus says, if you knew the power of God, you knew that God is not limited in any way in ability or creativity. You'd realize that life doesn't end with death and you'd see, you'd understand, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. Jesus says, when we die, when we enter in the afterlife, we will become like the angels. We don't become angels. I hate to burst anybody's bubble. Uh, you hear that sometimes at funerals and that kind of thing, and it's comforting, but none of you are going to get wings. I apologize about that. We'll be, we'll, it will be much cooler than that. We don't even need wings. But Jesus says we'll be like the angels. So the angels, um, they do not get married, they don't have babies, and they don't die. And, and Jesus says in the resurrection life, we'll be like them in that way. Now, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he said it this way. Marriages are on account of children, children on account of succession, and succession on account of death. But in heaven, there is no death, neither is there any marriage. So we won't need marriage because we're not going to need to have babies because there's not going to be any death in heaven. And so that's kind of the explanation. Now, my wife doesn't like this, fat, this, this verse. When I first preached it, first time I preached on this passage, she said, Jeff, I don't like the thought of us not being married in heaven. And then a couple days later, I did something very annoying. And uh, she said, you are on my nerves, is what she said. And I said to her, well, aren't you glad we're not stuck together forever? Now, some of this makes you sad. It makes you sad to think that I'm not going to be with my husband or my wife in heaven forever. And if that's you, then good for you. Praise God that you've got that kind of marriage. Amen? Uh, but if it makes you sad, I want you to think about it in this way. Uh, right now, little Jeffrey Jr. is growing in my beautiful bride's belly, and she's about eight months. I don't know. I don't know how this math works. If it's eight, nine the baby's due May 1st. It's probably, we're praying that she can hold out till Easter, after Easter. She wants to hold out till after her recitals on Saturday. Everybody's invited. It'd be a lot of fun. Uh, but, but right now, the baby's growing, right? And the baby is cozy. He's in this dark world, doesn't see really any light except for maybe what comes through. I don't understand exactly how that works. But, uh, and and there's, he's nice and cozy in there, you know, and he's well-fed, and it's warm, and uh, mama she rocks him to sleep because she's always on the go. And so he's, he, and when he gets uncomfortable, he just put his foot right there in the ribs and she'll move and then things are good. And, and so if we could talk to Jeffrey Jr. right now and we say, listen, bud, you can come out of there and it's going to be awesome. He would be tempted to say, no, this is great here, right? This is the only world he knows. And he's perfectly fine there. And, and, and but here in a couple of weeks, his whole world is going to be ripped from out from underneath him, right? And, 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 and it's going to freak him out. You know, he's, and there's the umbilical cord right now that's providing all of his needs. And this is, this is his life, right? And this umbilical cord is going to be ripped right out from his belly. And this is totally just going to jack up his whole world to the point that he's going to be crying his head off, screaming and peeing everywhere. That's what's going to happen. At one point, you too, you too were in your mother's belly, right? And you were a developing tadpole, and that was your world, Right Now, let me ask you a question. Would any of you want to go back to that place? No. 
It would, you would be a supreme weirdo to want to do that <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. Nobody, why? Because look at the world we're living in. Look at the freedom. Look at the creativity. Look at the joy. Think about food that you actually put in your mouth and you eat and you chew. I don't want to be fed through a tube that's stuck in my belly. I don't want that. Give me pizza that I can chew up and eat. Right? That's in the same way. This is what Jesus is saying. In the same way, uh, when, when we die, it's not a destination. Death isn't a destination. It's a door that we pass through. And we move from this life, this type of existence, into another life, another type of existence. And what Jesus is suggesting here is that in the same way you're, you move from the womb that's dark and it's cramped and you're cozy in there and God gives you everything you need to survive, the, the world that we were born into was so much more incredible and amazing. We couldn't even envision it when we were in the womb. In the same way, when we get to the other side, as awesome as marriage is, it's like an umbilical cord. We need it here on this earth. And it's a great gift that God gives us, companionship and joy and children. Uh, one of the greatest blessings that God has given us is marriage. But he says, in the, in the life that we're moving into, you're not going to need that. But you're not going to miss it. Because what we're moving into is so much more incredible than the life that we're living currently that our mind can't even wrap our head around it. We're, in a way, we're living in darkness. And when we move into that next world, we'll be living, we'll be living in so much light that we can't even, we can't even fathom it right now. Now, what's beautiful about that is that in Jesus' name, no matter how difficult, no matter how difficult this world is, in Jesus' name, the best is yet to come. The Bible says that the earth groans as in child, childbearing. It groans, uh, waiting to deliver us into this, this future reality. And, and so as you're experiencing this pain and this disappointment, this discouragement in, in this life, then understand, hey, it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. And, and once God is done, things are going to be more incredible than you could ever imagine. Verse 26 as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, what I love about Jesus here is he isn't trying to embarrass them. He's not trying to own them. He's not trying to destroy them. Instead, Jesus is ministering to them. Remember, the Sadducees denied the resurrection entirely, and they only viewed the first five books of the Bible to be authoritative. The reason they denied the resurrection is because in the first five books of the Bible, if you read it, uh, there's not a whole lot about the afterlife. It's really hard to see anything about the afterlife. And they say, so they say the first five books of the Bible, it doesn't say anything about resurrection, so we don't believe in the resurrection. And uh, the Sadducees would often de uh, debate the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they could never win a debate with the Sadducees because every time they would try and prove the afterlife by using the Scriptures, the, the Sadducees would say, we don't even believe that part of the Scriptures. Or they would say, if you can't show it to me in the first five books of the Bible, then I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to buy into it. And so what Jesus does is he goes back to the first five books of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3. He goes back to the first five books of the Bible. He says, hey, it's right here. And he takes a passage that oftentimes people overlook, and we're going to read it in a second. And, and it, you're not even going to make the connection initially to the afterlife. But Jesus does something here. He uses what the, the Sadducees accept as truth, and he speaks their language. He gets on their level, and he wants to communicate to them about the resurrection life. He wants to speak hope into their life, even though at this moment they've come to trap Jesus. 
They've come to try and destroy Jesus. And Jesus doesn't think of retaliation. He doesn't pay back evil with evil. Instead, he shows them grace and mercy. And he wants to speak life into them, even though they're trying to kill him. I think that's beautiful that God does that. Now, he goes to a story found in Exodus 3. You can read about it later. You know the story, Moses and the burning bush. Moses is a nomadic shepherd. He's, he's tending the sheep there in the wilderness. He sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. It just keeps burning and burning. He's curious about it because he's a man, and man, generally, they don't walk away, run away from fire. They run to it because we're crazy like that, right? And so he goes to the fire. Amen. He goes to the fire. The fire, a voice speaks from the fire. He figures out this is the voice of God. And God says to him, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt. My chosen people are down in Egypt. And they're enslaved. And I want you to tell Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, I want you to tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, who am I? I'm a nomadic shepherd. I'm nothing. I stutter. I'm not the man for this job. And then when they ask me by what authority, and when they ask me who told me to say this, what am I supposed to say? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And, and God says to him, what Jesus quotes here, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am, present tense, the God Present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who died 400 years before Moses was born. And so how can God be present tense, the God of men who have died, unless those men are still living in a different realm? And so Jesus uses just this little passage to totally disrupt, totally change the mind of the Sadducees. You say, hey, here it is right here. You, you buy the first five books of the Bible, here it is. God is the God, look at verse 27, he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. You see, God doesn't rule over dead things. God rules over living things. Let me say it a different way. What God rules over lives. Jesus' friend Lazarus died, or, and uh, he, was, he was dead for four days. And Jesus showed up. He missed the funeral. He missed the visitation. The sisters were upset. And Jesus comes up to one of the sisters, he, and she, he's consoling her, and he says, your brother will rise. And she says, I know. I know he'll rise. He'll, he'll rise on the last day. And look at what Jesus said, verse, uh, John chapter 11, verse 25 and following. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27, yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Moments later, Jesus goes to the mouth of the grave and he calls out into the grave, Lazarus, come out. At which point the dead man gets up out of this tomb and tears off his grave clothes. And I can just imagine him running up and giving his sister a big hug. You see, Jesus Christ is the king of a deathless kingdom. He's the king of of a kingdom in which there is no death. Jesus puts death to death. Jesus puts sickness to death. Jesus puts anxiety and depression to death. Jesus puts loneliness and despair to death. Jesus puts guilt and shame to death. Jesus puts fear to death. Jesus puts poverty to death. Jesus puts injustice to death. Jesus puts everything that's dark, everything that's evil, everything that's death, Jesus puts it to death. It does not exist in his kingdom. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And so in his name, death does not have the final say. In Jesus' name, there is no sinner who is too far gone. 
In Jesus' name, there is no situation that is too difficult. In Jesus' name, there is no such thing as a lost cause. In Jesus' name, there is no hopeless situation. I don't know what dead thing you are wrestling with in your life, but I do know this. In Jesus' name, there is a resurrection in your future. Make this declaration over your life. I preach this over my life all the time. Psalm chapter 27, verse 13. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Believe that. Believe that no matter how dire the situation. He is the God of the living, not the dead. And so if he is your God, guess what? You will live. And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that he is the God of all power, the God of all justice, the God of all mercy, the God of all grace, the God of all hope, if you don't believe that, Jesus says you are badly mistaken. Because hope is never a mistake. Let me say that again. Somebody needs to hear this. Hope is never a mistake. If you have no hope, you have no future. If you have no hope, you are defeating yourself. It's that simple. That's what happened to the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed all we ever see is this earth. This is as close to heaven. This earth this old earth is as close to heaven as we're going to get. And, and, and there's no such thing as hell, so I don't have to worry about judgment. And so guess what? The, the Sadducees, they lived selfishly. They lived corruptly for their own benefit. They took advantage of widows and orphans, and they became stinking, wealthy, rich. And everybody else looked at their behavior, and they hated them for it. And then AD 70, the temple was destroyed. After AD 70, we never hear another word from the Sadducees ever again. They dropped off the face of the earth because their way of life, a hopeless way of life, is a self-defeating way of life. I think that's what's happening in Winchester. I think too many of us have come to terms with all the drugs and the hookers and the dirty politicians and the poverty and the dilapidated downtown with empty buildings We've come to terms with the godlessness that we see in our school systems or in our culture or in the music. We've come to terms with the empty churches all up and down Main Street. We've come to terms with broken homes and broken marriages and uh, kids that are father. We've come to terms with all of it. We said, well, that's just, that's Winchester for you. That's Winchester. There's trash on the side of the streets. There's a topless man just haphazardly walking right in front of me. I got to slam on my brakes. People are driving around these little bikes. They're too small for them. They got backpacks full of stuff that they picked up out of somebody's backyard to take to the pawn shop. That's just Winchester for you. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. And so we've given up hope. And because we've given up hope, we've stopped trying. Because we've given up hope, we stopped caring. Because we've given up hope, we've stopped believing that it could ever be different. Folks, Christ Church of Winchester... It should not be so. Shouldn't be so. Here's the reality of it. There's about 200 people go to church here. If 200 people believed that we could make Winchester better, guess what? We would make Winchester better. If we bought in to what the scriptures say, if we really believed the power of God, this city could be different. Because we serve a resurrected king. And I believe he takes great delight in resurrecting things. And if that's the case, I believe he can resurrect this city. 
What would be different about your life if you truly believed the scriptures? If you believed that, that all these stories that we read here, they're not just legends, they're not just fairy tales, they're not myths, it's reality, it's history. What, what would be different about your life if you believed the things that you read in here? What would be different about your life if you really believed that God knew what was going on in your life? If you really believe that when you pray, he hears you. If you really believe that God is interested and he's involved and he's willing to work and make a difference, he's willing to intervene, what would be different about your life? I believe you wouldn't quit so easily. What I see, I see a world that has programmed us to quit. We don't know anything about long-suffering or perseverance anymore. It's not a virtue anymore. It's an inconvenience. We live in a microwave generation don't we? Two minutes. If it takes longer than two minutes, I'm just might as well eat me a sandwich. If Starbucks takes longer than 10 minutes to get me coffee, I'm calling a manager, right? We want instant, uh, instant streaming. We want next day delivery, don't we? We don't want to wait on anything. And so guess what? When your marriage gets hard, when your business gets hard, when your kids get hard, when school gets hard, when life gets hard, what do you want to do? Quit. Quit. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the energy. That's not what the Bible teaches us to do. The Bible says to the one who perseveres will receive the crown of life. What happens if we don't persevere? What happens if you give up on your marriage? What happens if you give up on your kids? What happens if you give up on this call that God has placed on your life? What happens? Nothing. Because quitting is the quickest way to fail. Quitting is the surest way to fail. If you never try, if you never see it to the end, guess what? It won't happen. It won't happen. The Bible says, don't grow weary in doing good. Why? Because at just the right time, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Friends, there is a resurrection in your future. Friends, there is hope for whatever hopeless situation you're in. God can turn it around, but you got to wait on the Lord. The Bible says those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. What are you about to quit on? Can I tell you, don't quit. Don't quit until God releases you from that calling on your life, and sometimes he does. But until he releases you, you stick with it. You stick with it because there's no telling. There's no telling what God's up to. I think if you really believed the scriptures, if you really believed in the power of God, you'd be more willing to try the impossible. We don't try hard things. We want easy. We want convenient. We don't try impossible. We're, so, we're such realists. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. You ever heard that before? I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. The Sadducees, they believed it was stupid to believe in the resurrection. Jesus said, it's not stupid, you're stupid. You're ignorant for not believing in it. God's given you all the evidence, and it's not a good way to live. It's not a good way to live to believe that there's not any hope, that things can't change. That's stupid. You're limiting yourself for no reason. Don't buy the lie. All throughout the scriptures, What you see, you see God using improbable men and women to do the impossible. It's what you see time and time again. Moses was a stuttering, angry, nomadic shepherd. God used him to deliver a whole nation from slavery. 
God used a little teenage shepherd boy to take down an undefeated giant with a slingshot. God used 12 ordinary men to change the world. It's altogether different because of them. Why did it happen? It happened because they believed the the impossible was possible with God. It happened because they believed it enough to put their, their, their faith out there, to put one foot in front of the other and try and do what nobody else was willing to do. I met recently with a couple of people that are thinking about running for office and uh, local politics. And let me encourage you, believers, we need more people, local magistrates. We need more people that are, are willing to go out and put their name in the political realm and, and try and govern this city according to God's principles. Amen? We need more of that. And so they came to me and they said, Jeff, I went to a meeting of my party. And I met with all the local politicians that are in my party. And I got to tell you, I walked into that room and immediately I felt a demonic spirit. I could feel the darkness in that room. And I've been talking with people that are in politics. And I'm starting to see the underbelly. I'm starting to see all the stuff that's happening behind the scenes that nobody knows about. And it breaks my heart. It's so evil and it's so corrupt and these people have so much power and I don't know if I can make a difference. That's what they told me. They said, I think I'm going to give up. I don't think I'm going to run because it's just too big of a problem. It's just too far gone. You ever feel that way? What difference can little old me make? Look at all the problems in the world. Look at what's going on in Ukraine. Look what's going on in Russia. Look at what's going on in Afghanistan. Look what's going on in China. Look what's going on in Canada. Look what's going on in our school systems. Look what's going on in our government. Look what's going on in economics. What difference can little old me make? Well, I'll tell you what I told them. You don't need to be scared of those demons. Those demons need to be scared of you. Because you are a child of light. And when the light shows up, the darkness has no choice but to flee. You don't realize how much power is within you because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now living in you. And Jesus said, what is, in, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What could you accomplish in this world if you would let God speak to your heart and give you a calling that is stupid in the eyes of common men? What would happen if you lived that calling out all the way and you said, God, I'm going to do what everybody says can't be done? You can't do it on your own strength. You can't. But with God, there's nothing you can't do. With God, you know what I believe? I believe our little old church can change Winchester. That's what I believe. Uh, With God, I believe that you can make a difference where nobody thought could be. I, I believe you can break generational curses. I believe that you, in Jesus' name, you have the power that everything that's going wrong in your family, it can turn around in Jesus' name. But it starts and it ends with hope. And if you don't have that, you won't accomplish any of it. And so, friends, we must know the power of God. We must believe the Scriptures. We must believe that there are better days ahead, and if God before us will get there. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in faith, asking you to increase our capacity to believe. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. I pray today against the spirit of cynicism and skepticism. Lord, I pray that jaded hearts, hard hearts, unbelieving hearts, pessimistic hearts, Lord, will be broken. 
Lord, that you will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I pray that you'll renew our hope this morning, our hope for our marriage, our hope for our health, our hope for our kids, our hope for our city, our hope for our world, our hope for our future. Empower us to be the people of hope. Lord, when, when Winchester thinks about Christ church, Lord, may they think about people that are full of hope. And may we take the God of hope to our hopeless world. Lord, give us the hope. Give us the strength. Give us the faith to go and change this city. It's possible if you be for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a song of invitation, celebration, and remembrance. This is a time where if you're carrying a burden that's too heavy for you to carry, if you're trying to accomplish the impossible right now, I'd encourage you to come and just kneel at this altar. There's something that happens when you step out from your pew and you take a few steps of faith and you come and kneel at this altar. I, I, I don't know what it is, but God does something when you begin to put feet to your prayers. And so I'd encourage you today, if you're carrying a load that's too heavy for you to carry, you're doing something you feel like is impossible to get done, will you please come and kneel at this altar? Let one of our prayer warriors pray over you. At this time, we've also got emblems on either side of the stage. It's a cracker, and it's a cup of juice. These represent the body and the blood of Christ. This is an opportunity for us to remember that Jesus Christ shed his own blood, and he died on the cross, and he was buried in the grave, and, 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 and he allowed the absolute worst thing that could happen to him to happen. And then three days later, he bust up out of the tomb to prove to you that God had accepted his sacrifice. And to prove to you that you do have a hope and you do have a future in his name. And so as you come today and you take those emblems, if you haven't already, celebrate that fact. Rest in that fact. Be strengthened by that fact. Knowing that the God who raised up out of the grave is also raising up things in your life. He's also fighting for you. He's also encouraging you. He's also strengthening you. And so as we sing this song, please 